0: Hi, everybody. This is uh, Gad Saad, just returned from uh, my first trip post-COVID. It turns out that one can have somewhat of personal agency, even though our overlords tell us what time to go to bed and what time to take showers. Uh, Today, I have a fantastic guest. I have uh, Janice Fiamingo on the show. Uh, I'll introduce you in a second, but hi, Janice. How are you doing?
1: Oh, I'm good. Thanks for having me on the show, Gad.
0: Oh, I'm so happy to uh, to see you again. Uh, Janice is a repeat... Uh, guest, one of the rare repeat guests. I think the last time that she was on was in 2016, and I'll be asking her whether things have gotten better or worse since our last uh, chat. Uh, she is a professor, a retired professor of English at the University of Ottawa, about two hours away from Montreal. Uh, she hosts a show titled The Fiamingo Files, which uh, was hosted by uh, Studio Brulee, They received a permanent ban from YouTube. Maybe we'll talk about that. So you can still find them, but not uh, under YouTube. Uh, She is the author of Sons of Feminism, Men Have Their Say. This was a 2018 uh, book and then an earlier book uh, in 2008, The Woman's Page and many other edited books uh so welcome again oh by the way before i before i uh, cede the floor to you if you appreciate these kinds of chats guys there are many ways that you can support this work Uh, most immediately you can just go below the channel there is an icon with a thanks you can press that and then you can exhibit your generosity all right janice uh so Mm -hmm. there are many things to talk about today uh i thought the first thing if you don't mind you recently retired uh, I know of other professors who are roughly our age who are contemplating this possibility. Uh, tell, If you don't mind, tell us about your retirement. Are you happy that you've retired from academia? Do you regret it? Give us a general feel of where you are in your life.
1: Oh, well, I'm, I was very happy to retire. I'm much more interested in writing on my own, uh, writing about issues that interest me and uh, Starting up again, uh, a YouTube channel, um, I found the academic environment quite stifling, the extent of the WOKE project everywhere, especially in the humanities and social sciences, but now, of course, invading even the natural sciences and engineering, etc. Uh, the extent of it is so much so that I don't think most people can feel comfortable there. It's sad to see the... Extent to which the entire university enterprise has been corrupted. So I was glad to to get out of there I I, you know, I has I hasten to say that there are still good people there, but that overall it is impossible really to um, to avoid uh, Social justice activism as an academic so uh, I was I was pretty glad to leave although I I knew many good people in my department and elsewhere
0: I mean, I guess uh, of, of course, the, the woke stuff or what you know, I would call in the parasitic mind idea pathogens are, are certainly a fundamental uh, you know, problem in universities and what causes many of us to, to rethink the fact that we should spend our time in academia but but independently of the the idea pathogens i think there's a second problem uh in in academia uh, which some of it may be related to the wokeness, but some of it uh, is problematic independently of the idea pathogens and that is just the, the the velocity of at which things move in academia or lack thereof right so if you are an irreverent thinker a bold thinker a courageous thinker academia does is not built on promoting or 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 rewarding or incentivizing such people now that some of that is due to the political correctness and all the other woke stuff but independently of that i've known i've known or i've known of uh you know people in the natural sciences who decided to leave academia and head off and start uh, independent research institutes because they thought that they can get their research done you know, much more quickly and with a lot less bureaucratic tape and so yeah. on. And, and that occurred independently of all the woke stuff that you and I fight against. Well, what are your thoughts yeah. on that?
1: Absolutely. The bureaucratization of the university has been another huge problem. And just the professionalization of the profession, if that makes any yeah. sense, in that you know there was a time, and in fact, I experienced it i think uh in the early days when I was an undergraduate student at the University of british columbia which was from from uh nineteen eighty two to nineteen eighty six when uh at least some departments in various faculties were still made up of individualists non-conformists independent thinkers outliers dissidents dissident intellectuals you know all of that that was still possible then and i think that was uh, a residue of the 1960s perhaps Um, and uh, yeah there were a, a lot of strange people strange brilliant nonconformist teaching in academia, and that, that was part of the joy of going there, was that one had access to these brilliant and strange minds, many of whom one felt would not have fit anywhere else in society. They weren't equipped to lead, they weren't equipped for the corporate world, the business world and that was precisely why they were valuable and all of those people have been forced out in various ways partly through the woke project partly through you know claims of harassment or that they made created unsafe environments because they refused to conform to speech codes and various types of ideological correctness but also just through the 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 professionalization of the disciplines they weren't necessarily interested in uh, publishing their research in the particular ways that were approved by the institution. They weren't interested in attending the types of conferences that were considered appropriate And so, yeah, all of those people are gone and the level of conformity of all sorts, not only ideological, as you say, but in every other way as well, has really deadened um, the search for knowledge in the academy and that's really too bad.
0: And I mean, it seems, I mean, if I'm thinking about all the different uh, disciplines where, you know, the the idea pathogens have most proliferated, uh, I mean... Yeah, there's there's quite a few who can claim the mantle as you know the most parasitized departments. Probably schools of <laughs> edu- schools of education might be the worst, but mm-hmm. I mean I think your home department—I don't mean specifically at University of Ottawa, but English no. literature would yeah. probably where s- some of the most you know lobotomized, parasitized people would would be would be working. Correct?
1: Yes, I would say yeah. Outside of the studies departments which sprang up of course and mostly in the late 1970s and proliferated in the 1980s the women's studies the gender studies the race studies uh critical legal studies what anything that's called studies uh tended to be quite bad fat studies (laughs) um and but yes english adopted uh all of those ideological perspectives with extreme enthusiasm and uh there were very few, one of the reasons I went to the University of Ottawa was that its English department uh, had held out for a long time as maintaining a uh, historical focus so that it was interested in literary periods, it was interested in the development of literary genres, you know, it it of course uh, had to take on board the, the various ideological approaches, but it, it maintained some kind of objective interest in literature, uh, you know, as an object of study, but even it, uh, you know, it, no, no department can hold out forever because the pressure to conform uh, for the reasons we just discussed are, are so great. Um, so yeah, that that certainly English religious studies, I think, um, sociology, anthropology. Uh, There's a whole bunch of departments that, as you say, could claim top spot as most woke, but uh, literature is right up there.
0: So I think, so there are several reasons that might explain why some disciplines are more parasitized than others. Uh, And let me propose a few. And I think that this itself, what I'm about to talk about, would make for an interesting scientific project or academic paper. So i'm housed at the business school and so i think the business school and the engineering school are inherently the least likely to be parasitized because there is a mechanism by which your ideas are going to be tested in the real world so there's an immediate feedback loop to your bullshit so if so you can't you can't really uh, develop uh, mathematical models of consumer choice uh, rooted in postmodernist mathematics because those models are not going to predict anything or you can't develop uh, you know you can't build a bridge uh, as a uh, you know civil engineer using postmodernist physics because the bridge is going to collapse. And so, notwithstanding the fact that I've been warning people for many years that don't worry, the idea pathogens are coming for you in chemistry and physics, as they now have.
1: Oh, as they have definitely. But but yes. there
0: are some fields that inherently epistemologically are going to be more protected. I think what happens in the the studies fields uh, where activism is really more important than the seeking of truth and where you you're not protected or you're not inoculated by a strong adherence to the scientific method that's where the idea of parasitic you know the parasitic garbage can can infiltrate itself so and, and that's going to kind of lead me to segue to the next topic it, you know literature The study of literature, to me, need not be something that is not studied scientifically. And as a matter of fact, I told you before we came on that I would ask you this, notwithstanding the fact that you're not an expert on this, there is a field within my general area of interest, evolutionary theory, where you study literature via an evolutionary lens. It's called literary Darwinism. And the the gentleman who really is the pioneer of this field, I just pulled up his name. His name is Joseph Carroll. So just a few, for the listeners who, are, who might be interested, he's written a book called Literary Darwinism, another one called Evolution and Literary Theory, a third one called Reading Human Nature, and then I'm just going to show you a few books. This, I think you'd, you'd get a kick out of the title of this book, uh, Madame Bovary's Ovaries. Uh, so there you go. Then here you've got The Literary Animal. It's an edited book by David Sloan Wilson and Jonathan Gushel and then here not quite literature but certainly within the art or world the art instinct each of these books are making the argument that nothing is outside the purview of our evolutionary thinking right we we are intoxicated by literary narratives because ultimately they are great windows to our human nature right so the mm-hmm. the things that we study the the sexual longing the parent child uh, uh, you know, conflict, uh, the paternity uncertainty, those themes reoccur whether it's an ancient Greek tragedy or it's Jane Austen or it's today. And so, well, first, I guess, had you heard of the field of literary Nar- Darwinism? And if not, uh, do you, would you like to weigh in on it or say anything about it?
1: Uh, I don't know very much about it. I certainly had heard of it, but I don't know enough to weigh in, uh, you know, with any kind of credibility. But um, I would say... Yeah, I mean that—that's uh, you know you make a very good point. If one uh, comes at the study of literature or indeed anything with an interest in understanding human nature, or even a belief that there is such a thing as human nature, which you know has already been uh, <laughs> pretty much dismantled by our postmodernist uh, friends, and um, I think you know the the. There, I don't know if there. It was inevitable that English literature would be colonized in the way it has been by social justice ideology. It uh, could have maintained its not really scientific, but serious academic credentials merely as a record of the culture. And I say merely, but I mean that's enough on its own. Uh, if if. Uh, going to university is understood as part of the project by which the younger generation has the, um, you know, the, the culture passed down to it. Uh, if that's understood as the primary project of, especially taking an arts or humanities degree, then there's no reason why not simply reading. The great books and coming to understand them, understanding the social and and other contexts out of which writers wrote, and the you know particular literary techniques that were meaningful at the time that they wrote, and you know the various ways of reading that literature. That is enough. It's uh, you know all of the race, gender, class, sexuality kinds of angles that uh, recent critics have brought to bear on literature, those are not necessary at all uh, to make that study relevant and fascinating, but um, partly because the postmodern project or the political project of of, uh, social justice, it isn't interested in the culture, it sees it as irredeemable, it sees it as um, destructive and horrific, and so it, it, it wants to destroy it and dismantle it, rather than see it as a repository of enduring truths about humanity and how human beings have understood their lives and made meaning. So I, you know, I agree with you that that would be a fascinating, I'm, I'm sure it is a fascinating approach, but it uh, it depends on the notion that there's something human that's worth knowing about rather than, um, you know, uh, passing on ideas about revolution and the hideousness of the civilization that our forefathers created.
0: Well, and, and I mean, I guess if you... It, the traditional lenses, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, that you, where you do literary criticism. So if you're a feminist, then every literary work is, is deconstructed as a struggle between men and women. The patriarchy is trying to do bad things. If you're a Marxist, then that same literary you know uh, uh, book that you're trying to analyze is viewed through the, the the prism of class struggle if you're a postmodernist, then anything goes because there is no objective truth so rather than doing a genuine honest attempt to try to understand the meaning that is conveyed through these books it just becomes sort of an orgiastic quest to uh solidify your victimology narrative correct i mean is sure, a-
1: absolutely that's yeah. what, all it is yeah. you, you take the particular political lens everything is read through that lens the the particular text that you're studying either exemplifies you know heteropatriarchal tyranny and all of its manifestations or it resists heteropatriarchal tyranny And therefore it is to be celebrated, so it's either to be condemned or celebrated and it's to be, you know, dissected uh, solely in terms of how it conforms or resists the particular um, pattern of dominance that one is analyzing. And it's, yeah, it's a really impoverished and totally predictable way of reading literature. Uh, and but it satisfies because it confirms and uh, it it solidifies the political project of those professors who who want to push that ideology.
0: So do you think that those professors who enter those fields did they start off with a more you know purist bent? Of you know, I just love books and I love mm. to read Dostoevsky. No, okay, so just by your by your not laugh, anymore. not you know, anymore. I think okay. some did in okay.
1: earlier days when when they you know when I when I started school, for example. It, although all of those ideologies were present in academia, they were making their way into the study of literature. Um, they weren't dominant at that point. And so you could still be a purist who just loved language and loved stories and, you know, how they mean and the various ways they embody worldviews from different cultures or different time periods. You could start out that way, and but then in order to advance in the field, it soon became almost impossible to do anything other than one of the approved ideological approaches. So, um, yeah, most But then by now, most students, um, by the time they even graduate from an undergraduate degree, and certainly by the time they um, graduate from from a master's or a PhD, they have been thoroughly marinated in those ideologies. And those are, in many cases, the only ones they've been taught
0: unbelievable so a couple of more questions about literature and writing and so on then we'll get into some of the woke stuff so one of the things that i uh, wish i could improve in my uh reading history uh, i have a if i may say it, an incredible personal library but almost all my books are non-fiction almost everything that i read is non-fiction and it really stems not from a lack of interest in reading uh, uh fiction you know fictional works Uh, Because as I mentioned earlier, I think we can learn a lot about human nature as someone who studies human nature from reading fiction. But given this sort of fixed pie that I have of time, then there's this other nonfiction book that I'd like to read more than So, number one, how can I get over this weakness in my personal history? And what what would be some of the top books that you'd recommend, you know, the top, you know, here are five books, Gad. Next time we speak, I'm hoping to hear that you've read them. Can you give me some? <laughs> I'm not
1: one to lecture you about that. Unfortunately, I read very few novels nowadays, Good. even though novel reading was one of my favorite things why? to do. When why? Why, a student. Do you, why do you? I just don't have time. Okay. Uh, you know, same thing. I'm, I, I read a lot of online articles. I have a, a tremendously large uh, email correspondence. I'm trying to keep up with you know, things that are going on in the world. Uh, I don't do very well at that. But yeah, I just don't have time. Um, I've started again, though, a little bit because the new project that I want to work on will involve looking at literary works as keys to how earlier authors, earlier eras understood the relationship between men and women in their society. And so right now I've been um, just started rereading uh, George Eliot famous 19th century British author her her work Middlemarch so that would be one that I would recommend to Mil- you Middlemarch?
0: Middlemarch Oh Middlemarch middle okay march. thank you
1: Middlemarch this is it's her great novel it is a portrait of a small provincial community and a number of individuals trying to live their lives within it and she has such um the narrator, but it's obviously George Eliot. Uh, Marianne Evans was her real name. She has such an intimate understanding of the ways we as human beings deceive ourselves about who we are and what we need and what we want in life and how we deceive others and how we are carried away by um, utopian longings or imaginings of who we should be. And uh, it, it the, there the insight into Human nature, which is is written in in both a comic and a tragic manner, is just tremendous. I, I, I all of her work is great, and and that is one I would recommend. Um, I'm a huge Jane Austen fan. I think that Jane Austen touched with the, the lightest satirical and ironic pathos um the, the the difficulties of human beings in being true to themselves and true to their ideals. I think she's wonderful. Um, you know all of the Russians are, are fantastic. I would love to do a program of of rereading the 19th century Russians, especially Tolstoy and Dostoyevsky, for example, The Demons, which is about ideological possession Uh, is a novel that I read partially years ago and really want to reread. You know, these are huge, complex books that could occupy, you know, a year of one's life, delving into them and and truly understanding them, so I I would recommend that. Um, I've also recently reread a wonderful book by Henry James uh, called The Bostonians, which was published in 1886 and is about uh, the, the feminist movement in Boston as part of the uh, social progressivism that replaced first Puritanism, and then um, uh, transcendentalism in the Massachusetts area. And it is the most, to me anyway, fascinating analysis of the feminist movement. He sets the novel in 1874, and it completely demolishes the idea That the early feminists were reasonable and were merely interested in taking up uh, the mantle of citizenship to share the burdens of citizenship with men which is what of course we've all been told over and over again Uh, and he uh, of course it is a novel so it's his perspective on things it's not a documentary but it is a very compelling portrait of the feminist movement and other progressive movements as replacement religions uh, as distorted um, ideological um, manias that grip and deform the human soul. And it's very powerful and fascinating. Wow. So I would recommend that one too. I'd love to talk about
0: that one more. Uh, wow, those are some great... You, you I've got my work cut out. I did start reading about 20 years ago. Uh, Crime and Punishment. I must have gotten that's through one. about 100 pages and I, I always regretted that I never finished it. So, a
1: great one. Yeah, yeah that, that certainly is a great one. Easy. When you the, yeah.
0: the first one that you started with where you talked about um, self-deception, the uh, George Eliot one. Uh, well, so let me mention uh, an evolutionary analysis of self-deception. So Robert Trivers, who's one of the truly giants of evolutionary biology. Some have argued that he's the biggest biologist uh, since Darwin. That's saying a lot. Uh, he he was actually supposed to come on my show and then, uh, <laughs> regrettably, it, while me trying to be as charitable and kind as I can be and diplomatic, he he is someone who has been known to be quite cantankerous and erratic and has had some mental health issues. So our even our attempt to communicate to get him on the show broke down, which was a real... Regrettable thing because I would have loved to have him on. He's about now maybe in his late seventies. But but Trivers, in any case, no one can doubt his uh, scientific output. Uh, wrote a paper and he's he's also written a book on the evolution of self-deception. Why? W- what would be the evolutionary reason that we are so good at engaging in self-deception? Uh, do you want me? I don't mean to put you on the spot, but do you want me to? Uh, seed you the floor to see if you want to take a crack at what might be an explanation and then see if it (laughs) jots you want you want to do it or do you want to just tell you it's up to you
1: well (laughs) I'd I'd rather you just told me but I would say certainly that it it, uh, well on the most basic level I suppose self-deception makes it more possible for us to live with ourselves um, (laughs) if we uh, give ourselves um, rationales for why we are not responsible for something that we did or you know something that we, sure. we did that was wrong, or why um, there are forces um, that are ranged against us that prevent us from achieving what we think we should be achieving, or why we're really acting out of the best motives when we're really acting out of baser motives. It certainly makes um, uh, the comfort of life more manageable rather than uh, a self awareness of uh, how we have betrayed our own ideals or betrayed others.
0: Well, so so certainly that that's a. Perfectly valid explanation to to try to uh, understand uh, the the management of self deception when it's looking inward, right? So all of the examples that you gave are how do I live within myself? How can I self deceive? So I, so if I did A, I can live with having done A, or right? Right. But uh, his explanation is really rooted in uh, why you the the fact that I've evolved self deception is actually a function of how i'm going to interact with you so it's other oriented so let me explain because it might sound cryptic what i'm saying so in the same way that when you have a an evolutionary arms race between uh, a host and a pathogen and there's an evolutionary arms race as the as the pathogen is trying to evolve ways to 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 trick your immune system you evolve ways to try to fight against that so that's what we mean by an evolutionary arms race well uh, Trivers argued that one of the fundamental features of human interactions is Machiavellianism, right? I'm trying to get you to do something uh, without you recognizing my my duplicitous attempt or my mm-hmm. manipulative attempt, and so you've evolved the the ability. To try to read in me certain cues of deception so that if you read those cues, then you can protect yourself accordingly. Now, one of the best ways I could make sure that I don't emit any cues of manipulation is if I first believe the lie, right? So, so by so, so think about the old adage, right? Uh, you know, you first have to believe the lie yourself before you tell it to another, right? So, so if I can convince myself that what I'm about to tell you is truthful, shutting off any cues of deception, when you come with your keen detecting eye to try to pick up those cues in me, you can't find them because I've already self-deceived myself. What do you think hmm. of that? Pretty-
1: well, it's a pretty cynical uh, <laughs> human nature and human interaction, but I can't say that it's wrong necessarily. Uh, does he have a theory about... Um, why some people would be able to avoid that uh, sort of double mechanism of, of deceiving themselves in order to deceive others? Is there a way in which not deceiving oneself um, allows one then to engage um, somehow more more profoundly, more productively perhaps with others because you don't have all that layer of right. self-deception and, and other deception?
0: Yeah, well, that's a fantastic question. Look, I, I, I think it sounds cynical because it makes it seem as though every interaction is laden with this evolutionary dance but but think about something that we're both interested i mean anybody's interested in 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 mating behavior right i mean you look at it from a feminist i mean anti-feminist perspective i look at it as an evolutionist uh when a guy is trying to convince a woman that he is very interested in her, whereas in reality he may not be in so interested in her. But he would love to get an opportunity for a, a mating situation to happen. He, right? He gives her a gift that is laden in many cases in many cases with duplicity. So, so. Uh, I don't think it's cynical in a sense. I think it's part of human nature. Now, I'm a purist. I'd like, I like—I don't even like to go to networking functions because from my purist bent, just the fact that I'm going to this function to network, therefore there's an ulterior motive, upsets me because I want every interaction to be as pure as possible. So I don't mean to imply that he's arguing that we're just all these lying bags of garbage that are constantly deceiving each other, but we are often trying to manipulate the other, right? When I'm, when I'm a salesman and I'm trying to convince you that these jeans really look great on you or <laughs> you, you really should buy this car, uh, I'm not always being my most pure self. And so, so I think that even for the purest of souls, there is at some, at some point uh, some duplicity taking place. When you tell your child, you know, I, I think you can be whatever you want to be in life isn't that in part a form of duplicity because I don't think my son is going to be the next Michael Jordan even though I think he could be most so I don't know does does that reduce Mm -hmm. the cynicism that you thought yeah Mm
1: -hmm. well and, and it's true that one does meet people who in actually a rather positive way believe their own um yeah. propaganda or or lies to to put it crudely and i have met such people and often they do make very good salespeople because they're not stymied by an awareness of the falsity <laughs> and the manipulation involved because they do actually believe that they're helping people to make a great purchase and you know and, and they actually believe that I guess that even if they're looking at somebody who doesn't look very good in a pair of jeans that somehow, I don't know, that they can see that they look pretty good anyway and, and it's good to be enthusiastic. And And I actually, it, that's a very interesting thing because I envy such people in some ways. Uh, and I think I'm not very good at that. I'm very self-conscious about, I, I, well, I just often feel very self-conscious in all sorts of different types of interactions where if i 'm trying to convince somebody of anything, even if i 'm trying to make a an argument for something I absolutely believe to be true i don't like attempting even the act of persuasion so um, yeah you know, and that which is strange, but uh, it's true um, and i've I've found that in my own um the videos that i've made and the writing that i do i realize that i'm actually not trying to convince people who aren't already convinced which often people will dismiss that and say what's the point then yeah. if you're writing to the converted but that's exactly what i'm doing i am writing and speaking to those who already have the feeling that something has gone terribly wrong especially in the realm of how men are portrayed men's life possibilities um the the way in which men are treated in our society generally i i want to speak specifically to those to men and women who already recognize that i don't want to try to to force them or or even to persuade them necessarily Um, and then that's just part of who i am because i am self-conscious about projects of persuasion but what very interesting but
0: that's that to me if, if i mean, i don't mean to you know open up the psychoanalytic couch here on you but uh, why is it that you find that the act of persuasion to be a form of impurity i mean I, I i look at it actually quite the opposite i look at it as i am a deontological purist pursuer of the truth and if i see someone who whom i think is a, is a is a lost soul when it comes to certain metrics of truth then I am the apostle who's going to come and hit you with the brick of truth. I see that as a great act of nobility, Mm -hmm. whereas you see it as somehow an act of... uh You know uh your Uh, colonialism what what is it no
1: no i don't i don't see it as anything wrong with it in fact i admire people who who engage in that kind of work of of trying to lead people who are in error into truth it's more it has to do with me i think with a particular uh i don't like um i don't like having to think about what will be most persuasive Mm. um I don't know why it is exactly it's yeah it would take some kind of uh, deep work on on the the psychoanalyst couch to figure it out exactly but it has to do with my own self-consciousness and and perhaps lack of um lack of certainty although i am certain about the things that i speak about publicly but i just don't feel comfortable attempting to persuade i feel more comfortable giving the ammunition of what I know to be true to people who themselves can go out and yeah. happy in doing that kind of um, not proselytizing, but proselytizing for yeah. the truth.
0: Yeah, oh, I like it. So what I mean, what I don't know if there is an exact episodic moment that you could think of where you said, OK, this is a cause that I want to pursue. But what is it? in the feminist project, feminist in the negative sense of the word feminist, in the way that we both understand it? Because, of course, we could both agree that Christine Huff-Summer's, you know, equity feminism is something that we would both support. Men and women should be treated equally under the law. Most reasonable people would say, yeah, of course. But when we say feminism, we mean it in all its ugly, insane Mm -hmm. manifestations. What is it that made you say, I'm a woman, so I'm not going to fall Pray to tribal identity and say I'm going to stand with the women even if I think it's a bunch of bullshit what allowed you to supersede this and say I'm standing with the men and I think they deserve dignity what allowed you to break through the likely tribalism and pursue the correct position What what was it in you
1: I guess it was just recognizing that everything that I had been told about what feminism was and what it wanted to achieve was wrong and that became clear when I saw the vicious and dishonest actions and behavior of various feminists. It was particularly crystallized um, for the uh, on the, the day that um, Warren Farrell tried to speak at the University of Toronto in the fall of 2012, and a crowd of angry students, mobilized by their professors, came to prevent him from speaking, and I, and he was speaking about. Um, one of his major passions, which was the title of a book, The Boy Crisis, that he was, I think, writing then, and which was published a number of years later. And um, so he was talking about the limitations, especially facing boys in their life possibilities, because of the way in which the school system, and school system in particular, but everything else in our culture, is designed to encourage and affirm girls and femininity and is designed to discourage and vilify masculinity. Pathologize. Pathologize, absolutely demonize, e- marginalize everything to do with masculinity. So that's what he was talking about. and um, he is you know he is not an anti-feminist in, in the positive sense. He's extremely sem- uh, sympathetic. Towards women and to mothers, etc., far more so than I am, um, and uh, and yet they wouldn't even allow him to speak and, uh, out of a position of the most ridiculous, arrogant ignorance. Not a single one of them, you could tell, had ever read anything Warren Farrell had ever written or understood anything about what he was trying to argue, and yet they were determined that he must not be allowed to speak. That was really the signal moment in which cancel culture fully came into being, I think, at least as far as I understood it, and and as a trend on university campuses so um, so that was really the crystallizing moment when I thought and i mean i 'd been uncomfortable deeply uncomfortable with feminist ideology for years and years, but i 'd never really done anything about it publicly, but that was sort of the beginning of my sense of mission to speak against it whenever I could. But I mean, I'd become uncomfortable with it far before that, just being in the classroom and looking out, seeing a classroom full of very self-conscious, often quite brash, hectoring young women, you know, full of a sense of their own importance, that every word they said would, would be applauded, that all they had to do was mention their victim story and people would, would allow them to speak and that they would have authority and power. And then looking at the young men in the class and seeing that there was no way, not only were these men not oppressors, they were highly benevolent in their intentions towards the women and the world in general, but that they had been cowed. They didn't have a voice anymore at all. They were supposed to apologize and they felt that deeply that they should apologize for their very being. And it sickened me to see that and to think what it must feel like to sit in classrooms, in classroom after classroom, month after month, year after year, listening to how your sex was responsible for all the evil in the world, and that you bore the weight of centuries of oppression and cruelty on your shoulders just because of the way you were born, and that because of that, the only thing you could do to escape the condemnation, the righteous condemnation of that was to essentially turn over all power to your sisters who were going to bring about some kind of utopia of justice and compassion.
0: Well, you know, I, 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 I sense your incredulity. And of course, uh, I, share, I share your sentiments of exasperation, but... Uh, Look, I I don't know if you've had a chance to fully read uh, my my last book. I, I mentioned this not, not to plug the book, but because it's going to speak to exactly something that you just mentioned. In one of the chapters, I talk about an anecdote whereby a, uh, a, a apparently a fan, a, a female fan who was attending my uh, university, uh, who was uh, part of the women's club of the business school or something like that she said well we'd really love to have you and come and speak at one of our events as the the keynote speaker where maybe you can talk about how you know you've been a great ally to women in your career (laughs) now boy did she i guess not understand who i was <laughs> because I because I was very polite and and it was all it the interaction was quite nice but I said well I'm actually not an ally to women I'm an ally to every single individual who is worthy of my allyship uh my dean is a woman my associate dean is a woman my departmental chair is a woman we have more female chaired professors than we need than we have men I don't think they need my allyship it is it is insulting and infantilizing to presume that they need my protection and my allyship. But I'd be happy to come and talk about uh, the evolutionary reasons for sex differences. Well, you know, Dr. Saad, we'll get back to you. You know what? We're going to go a different direction. So I thought that that was so insulting. You already have women in my department that are grossly outnumbering men, but yet here is a man who apparently is worthy of being invited to this thing, where he should only be talking about how he has singularly helped women achieve it. It struck me as so grandiose in its narcissism that it was oh, yeah. sickening.
1: Yeah, it, I, I, unbelievable, isn't it? And these are the same feminists who will uh, object to what they call benevolent sexism. Of if a man dares to... Hold a door open or offer to take the wheel in a long car trip or anything that implies that the woman is in any way delicate or in need of his aid. That's a terrible thing. But at the same time, he's supposed to somehow devote his life to advancing women and promoting them and standing up for them and never say a word about this interest of anyone other than women yeah it's amazing but so here's a
0: question for you and maybe it's a bit out of your wheelhouse from a perspective of the evolutionary point i'm going to make but certainly as a as a woman you can certainly weigh we, we are both evolved beings in a darwinian sense most women if you're going to ask them what are they sexually attracted to are going to offer an archetype of the man that they're attracted to that is the epitome of what they otherwise go to the women's studies class and refer mm-hmm. to as the pathological toxic male. He yes. is brash. He is socially dominant. He is ambitious, right? Now, it's not a guy who is an abuser, right? He, he is kind to the people who, to whom he should be kind. So nobody is saying that you're a caveman who's beating and raping everybody, but that the archetype of the male hero is precisely what women fantasize about. And that's why mm-hmm. when you do a study on romance novels... So literary Darwinism, you find Mm -hmm. that it is the exact same male archetype that is captured in every single romance novel that's ever been written. So how does the woman who sits in the women's studies class doesn't shave her armpit because, you know, patriarchy, but yet in the deep privacy of her home is sexually fantasizing about exactly that guy that she then points to and says you're a pathological beast how does she reconcile these two things in her head Mm -hmm.
1: well she doesn't reconcile them and you can see all sorts of articles written by these feminists um you know confessing their attraction to oh, precisely okay. the kind of man you know you can find them all over the internet why am I attracted to precisely the kind of man that I know I shouldn't be attracted to according to my feminist principles <laughs> uh, and some of them will simply present them as you know they'll, they'll sort of brag about the 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 contradiction in themselves um, they don't they don't they're not able to and they're they're never able to take the next step and to say gee maybe there's something wrong with the theory that i'm developing with the theory that i have embraced as my religious rationale for being Uh, Maybe it actually runs counter to human nature. Uh, Actually, that's the theme of the novel I was mentioning that I was studying the Bostonians just recently. It's precisely that. It's about a young woman who uh, is is convinced by a slightly older feminist uh, proponent that she should devote herself to the feminist cause. She's a very articulate platform speaker. And she falls in love with a Southerner, a veteran of the uh, Civil War who fought on the Southern side, uh, who has very retrograde views about women. And she finds herself overwhelmingly attracted to him and his vision of who she really is as a woman. And uh, so, you know, Henry James, the the author, he put his finger on precisely that contradiction that he saw in the early feminist movement, and we still see it today. It's, yeah, it's a a startling thing.
0: Do you think that, so I'm going to ask it regarding the, the whole feminist thing, but more generally we can blow it up to all of the woke parasitic ideas. If we compare where we were, say, five years ago, when you and I last spoke on the show to today, have the idea pathogens continue to proliferate? And if so, how much longer can this go on? Can we hope for it to, I mean, I like to always leave off a lot of these talks when I'm, where I say, look, there is still hope, right? Be optimistic. Otherwise, there'd be no point getting out of bed. Do you share that optimism or is the university project dead and we, we need to break everything apart and restart from zero?
1: Well, I certainly would like to see private universities beginning now because I don't see any um, reform happening within universities in any time soon. I, I mean, I, I agree with you that the Wolk project can't go on forever. Unfortunately, I'm not particularly hopeful about reform taking place, you know, in the next few years. Uh, I think everything is going to probably have to collapse before it can be changed. I don't know. I mean, it's possible that a new generation will reject the stifling conformity and the reductiveness of all of these, as you say, idea pathogens that have become the new, the dominant orthodoxies of elite culture, not only in universities, but in the political world and the corporate world and elsewhere it is quite possible that a whole generation uh, just coming up now um, who have uh, been taught almost nothing else will say forget it and we'll rediscover different ways of of looking at you know various subjects and we'll find those exciting and bold and revolutionary i certainly hope so um but right now i don't see that happening the the i mean i i see us well with you know the with the entire COVID project, it seems everything, the 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 mass feminization of our society, the development of governments as um, you know, conforming to the sort of the devouring mother archetype. I've just been writing about that a little bit. Not that I really understand the um, psychoanalytic theory behind that idea, but just the idea that our governments demand our utter dependence and conformity, as you were saying at the outset, telling us how many people we can have over on Christmas Day and how many windows we should have open and whether we should wear our masks or not, or whether we should allow an unvaccinated person to attend dinner and you know all of those types of things. Our chief health authority here in British Columbia, Bonnie Henry, um, announced last spring that she was thinking of inaugurating A BC hug day. Nice.
0: Pardon me? No, I said nice. I was going to say, yeah.
1: Yeah. Can you imagine a hug day, a day that we could finally, at that point, that was about June, 14 months into this pandemic, that we could actually hug our relatives and friends? Thank you so much, Bonnie (laughs) Henry. But that was only if we were very good. Yeah and if we followed all her orders and took our medicine, the infantilization of the citizenry and the the consolidation of authorities as the stern, wise, all-knowing mother figure, forcing her children, citizens to comply through persuasion, through manipulation, through punishments, It, you know, it couldn't have been more evident. And so I feel like all of the problems that we've been talking about conformity, virtue signaling, the demand that one comply, uh, you know, vicious spiraling accusations that you're a bad person if in any way you don't conform you know all of the things that we objected to five years ago are now have now been ramped up even more when the government has decided that it's even going to d- decide whether you can keep your business open yeah. or whether if you're a christian pastor you can have a your church open while well, meanwhile of course people are crammed into costco cheap by jowl every hour of the day but you can't have church for one hour on a Sunday. I mean, it's just so the level of irrationality and the level, the degree to which people have been willing to comply to even the most self-contradictory and ridiculous of mandates and orders. And when I see the people, you know, a young couple with a three-year-old child and they're all wearing their masks while they walk outside uh, or somebody sitting alone in his car wearing his mask, and it just seems to me that we have become a um, a society so ridiculously and irrationally fearful and willing to give up every single freedom for the promise of some kind of security um, you know that it seems that the triumph of feeling over reason is complete and yeah. it's Pretty dispiriting. I I don't see in those people much will to think for themselves, to make their own risk-benefit calculations, to do their own research and make decisions for themselves, often because they're not able to make decisions for themselves, they're not even allowed to anymore. Uh, So I think we're in a pretty bad situation right now, but I'm always, I mean, I'm always hoping that I'm wrong. Like my philosophy is sort of stoic pessimism. I get out of bed in the morning, not because I think it's going to be a good day when the tide is turning, but because I like doing my work. I like writing things and thinking. but um, but I still, I always hope to be wrong. I would love to uh, have a conversation with you in a year where you say, well, Janice, you were pretty pessimistic the last <laughs> time we spoke and it turned out you were completely wrong right. because this movement, you know, arose right the day after we talked and it overturned everything. And right. now we're living free lives. I would just love that. And I do hope that that's the case.
0: But why why is that, and not, not that I disagree, but I just want the, view, the, the, the viewers to understand you, when you started this explanation, you referred to the link between COVID and mass feminization. Why Mm -hmm. why is why are all the things that we've been talking about? Why is that uh, feminine, you know, mass feminization rather than mass acquiescence to our instinct to follow the overlord, which need not be linked to a feminization mechanism. So can you explain that?
1: Well, I just think that uh, COVID, I mean, well, that's a long story, but I would say in general, it is a quality of the masculine, not of every man, of course, but it is a quality of the masculine to dissent. Um, men, men, um, Men contribute to their society by bringing something that they can do that is of particular worth. And that can, you know, it it, it usually involves some combination of, of, you know, something involving courage or or strength or skill or or risk taking or boldness or hard work or wisdom or critical thinking, that kind of thing. I mean, that's what that's what men do. Um, Women have a, you know, different. I think. um, I mean, some women do that too, of course, but I think that's the masculine in them. But the feminine is. is the quality that looks for security, that right. wants to I make see. Got it, it. You know? So that's what I mean, Got so it. That, that what, what the COVID project has involved has been making it absolutely impossible for dissident men, bold men, men to take risks. In fact, the whole idea that um, there was a COVID war going on, but it was the most peculiar war of all because it was a war in which none of the traditional masculine virtues like boldness, physical courage risk taking etc none of those was allowed not only were they not wanted they were they were ruled out of order altogether if you were relying on your own um risk benefit calculation you were seen as murderously indifferent to the welfare of others if you were willing to take a risk and keep your business open you were seen as uh you know cruel and and you know uh, terminally reckless in your attitudes and and you were demonized as a risk to public health and so yeah every every masculine virtue that any person might have has been squelched by the COVID project in a way that i think is unprecedented and there are all sorts of ways that the COVID project lined up with feminist ideology in the way it celebrated submissiveness and the way it celebrated only female types of heroines in the way our leaders Came forward as you know, stern but benevolent mother figures. You know, all of that has been quite startling to me because I've been thinking so much about the feminist project. So it seemed to me that yeah, COVID was a an occasion in which the feminist project was able to be aligned with this biosecurity state project uh, in ways that have been really damaging to male independence, especially because it, it has impacted men's ability to to uh, look after themselves, to provide for themselves and their families, and to make decisions for themselves and their families based on their own, own knowledge and understanding.
0: So in a way, I mean, if I were to summarize the, this excellent explanation that you just gave us, in a way, what COVID has allowed to do is complete the castration of the Western man project, right? There were still, if there were still a few men that had the morphological features of testicles, then COVID came along and said, no, no, I see you've got male genitalia. Time to cut off those balls. That's basically what you're arguing.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly, and I mean, it, you could say that feminism had already pretty done that, yeah. completed <laughs> that project, you know, even before COVID. COVID just exacerbated it and confirmed it and made it a reality writ large, and made clear that this is the direction our society is going to go now, unless we somehow turn things around, um, because every man, even before COVID, knew that he was dependent on not being accused. He could be in his personal life falsely accused uh, either of you know some kind of uh, act of domestic violence or perhaps sexual abuse of a child uh, and, and his, his personal life could be destroyed. In his professional life, he merely has to be accused of sexual harassment or sexual assault, and his professional life can be destroyed. Of course, not every woman is going to do that. But every woman can, and she must know that she can, and every man knows that he is at some level vulnerable to that kind of accusation. The ramifications of that for dissident masculinity um, are absolutely, I mean, they're, they're, they're huge. Uh, so that was already the case even before uh, the government came along and said, you can only work. At our say so. We can close down your business. And I, I was struck by the fact that it seemed that those governments that are most feminist compliant have also been the most cavalier about leaving businesses closed for months on end, you know, in the name of some kind of completely fanatical COVID zero project, so that men who had built businesses over, years and years had to sit and watch them collapse and die like that's just incredible to me
0: yeah no I hear you uh uh, quick question uh as you're sort of discussing sort of the injustices that men faced or, or or potentially can face I thought about you know what is the demographic of the typical person who writes to you to thank you for your outreach and I couldn't I couldn't quite predict. So there are two possibilities. One would be more men write to you because, you know, you have a, a, you know, a high profile woman, a a former professor, a retired professor who's defending them. Or you have also the closeted women who despise the attack on their sons and husbands and, and, you know, grandfathers who could also be writing to you saying, hey, thank you for defending you know, the safety of my son who's going to go into the workforce. Do you have a sense of which of these two demographics is the one that's most likely to be reaching out to you? I would think the former, but maybe I'm wrong.
1: Yeah, no, you're right. It's fairly rare for, for women to write to me. I mean, I do get, um, I, I I do hear from women. There are a lot of women out there who are appalled and disgusted by feminism Um, I wish more women would speak out because it's a lot easier for a woman to stand up for men than it is for men actually to speak against feminism. They immediately get accused of misogyny and all sorts of horrible things. Uh, which it's harder to make a, that accusation against a woman, although we get n- lots of nasty uh, stuff as well. But um, yeah, it's mostly men for sure. Yeah. Uh, men, a whole variety of age groups. Um, you know, I see myself primarily as well. No, I was going to say I see myself primarily as speaking to young men because I think it's particularly hard for them because this is all they've ever heard in many cases from the very early years of their public schooling. Many of them raised by single mothers, many of them lacking any kind of father figure in their, in their lives, uh, you know, any sort of model of, of positive masculinity. So I, I kind of see myself primarily speaking to them, but really to, to any man who has wondered if he's crazy in thinking that, you know, it certainly seems as if men don't matter at all, that they are expected to sacrifice for their society. They're expected to do all of these things for women and they're judged as whether they're a good man or not, uh, according to whether they put women first, but at the same time they are marginalized and ignored, if not, as you said, pathologized constantly for the very qualities that feminists demand that they exercise on behalf of women. I mean, it is just this utterly is unbelievable. Crazy. Unbelievable.
0: Yeah. Uh, I, I know that uh, recently you and I communicated by email and you, you had been uh, weighing in on something that actually happened in Montreal, speaking in this case of, yes, a really violent form of toxic masculinity. The, the Montreal massacre that I think happened in 1989 where I can't remember, is it 11 or 12 women were killed by a madman
1: yeah, yeah 14, 14 women 14 women were, were killed by uh, the gunman uh, as you say on December the 6th 1989 and uh, he also injured 10 more women and four men he went into the polytechnic institute at the University of Montreal on yeah. the afternoon of December six, and he separated the men from the women he announced that he hated feminists and even when one woman objected that they weren't all feminists, he then opened fire and moved up and down the uh, the hallways in search of more victims before finally turning the gun on himself. And yeah, I've always been um, bothered by, or for a long time anyway, I've been bothered by the way that day was turned into an occasion for a bunch of Um, fear-mongering about the omnipresence of violence against women in Canadian society, and of course, the further demonization of masculinity. And so I did a lot of research over the last year about the reporting around that incident and anything I could find out about the gunman's life. He was born Gamil Garbi. He called and changed his name to Mark and took his mother's maiden name, Lapine, and uh, so, I, I, you know, I researched as much as I could find out about him as well and, and just about the reality of violence against women. And, and so that was my first uh, video in the reconstituted Fiamengo File 2.0 <laughs> series that um, I'm launching now um, after our, my, my, after Studio Brulee was, was received a permanent ban. From YouTube so yeah I mean that that it continues to fascinate me how that day 32 years after the event now has remained this excuse to condemn and shame all men every year there is discussion about how men need to unlearn toxic masculinity and how men have to stop consenting to the oppression of women and every man looking on knows clearly that the only way he can get a pass on that day, but that day is really just a microcosm of the society as a whole, the only way he can get a pass is to recognize that there will never be a day to honor his sex and their particular contributions to society or sacrifices that you know even remembrance day as mark Lapine himself pointed out has been equalized it's no longer about male sacrifice because that would be sexist so men looking on know that the only way they can get a pass is by um, disavowing their own sex by accepting their shameful affiliation with mark lepine and by pledging to work unceasingly for women's advancement, even if that's at their to their own disadvantage, through, for example, affirmative action hiring, affirmative action policies at universities, which have been going on for decades and decades. And yeah, it just it's it's uh, it's a startling microcosm of the feminist warping of reality in the service of ideological ends.
0: Well, I, I in, the, in The Parasitic Mind, I have a quote from uh, our common heroine, Hillary Clinton, uh, mm-hmm. who who said, I'm paraphrasing because I don't have the exact quote, I mean, the real victims of war when millions right. of men die in war is obviously women because mm-hmm. their death is their... Vi- so, so even the death of the millions of men did not allow them to get a little grain of victimology score. So even when you are buried, right, you're yeah. dead. Yeah. The one who is grieving is the greater victim in this story. So it's, yeah. it's it truly is a form of pathology that uh, hopefully we can extricate ourselves out of because yeah. for a sexually reproducing species, you can't continuously come up with narratives pitting the two sexes against each other right i mean yeah. D- david buss who's a fellow evolutionary psychologist and one of the pioneers of evolutionary psychology has made on many occasions the the wonderfully uh, powerful point that when it comes to you know evolutionary dynamics there is a lot of competition but usually it's intrasexual competition mm-hmm. right men compete very violently against other men for access to women and women using their own strategies of competition compete quite feverishly intrasexually. There's a lot less. So if you're going to talk about competition and violence and manipulation, there's a lot more intrasexual competition taking place than intersexual. So the so the project not only is it grotesquely false on endless epistemological grounds, it's evolutionarily false. Men fight other men a lot more than they you know met out violence against women.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. and so how is it that now, for the last I would say at least 150 years, the um, narrative has become more and more standard, accepted by both men and women, that there is nothing good in the pair bond, yeah. that there that you know that that, that men hate women meant that the entire history of the human species has been the history of men oppressing women and being cruel to them that women are morally superior to men that men are in fact sort of secondary failed female beings yeah. uh, and that that's you know the best H- thing heterosexual
0: forgive me for interrupting you heterosexual mating is penetrative therefore it is inherently violent Violent. now you don't need to be a fancy evolutionary psychologist or evolutionary biologist to kind of scratch your head and go are you insane so if you're taking a sexually reproducing species and arguing that the act of reproduction is tarred by it being violent even though it was very loving, it was even though it was very consensual, it's mm-hmm. penetrative. Therefore, yeah. it is inherently violent. Mm-hmm. Well, how do you think, Madame Lesbian, did you come to be? Was it not through the act of penetrative sex that you came to be? But apparently, the irony is lost on them. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I know. It's really... I don't know. I mean, I, I find it just astounding, really. Uh, there was something in The Spectator the other day, a couple weeks ago, an article called the dangerous pleasure of hating men by one of their columnists there a woman named mary wakefield and and i thought right away i thought you know i just can't imagine a man publishing an article in a mainstream magazine called the dangerous pleasure of hating women <laughs> i do know a few men a very few men who hate women i don't know any man who takes pleasure in the hatred right. And, you know, and I appreciated the article, I mean, most men I know absolutely love women, um, but the, I appreciated the article for naming that phenomenon as pleasurable hatred. We hear a lot of discussion about how women yeah. are allegedly afraid of men, and, you know, that that's the basis of feminism. And we hear some discussion about women being angry at men but enjoying their hatred. And the point she was making in the article was that um, she was noting that Netflix recently has produced a whole series. She was talking in particular about some mini series called Maid, which I've never seen, about a single mother escaping from an abusive boyfriend and then every man she encounters is either Actively predatory, or at least passively sexist. There's not a single man with any redeeming qualities in the whole miniseries. And she was saying that that Netflix is really working overtime to turn man-hating into a kind of you know recreational sport. You know, the women actively enjoy and sit there with their buttered popcorn and and really get into it. And and she even co- confesses that she herself indulged in this sport for a while and she was abusive to her husband and accused him of mansplaining and searched back through her life, through all of her experiences, to find instances that might be deemed sexual violence or sexual aggression but then she got out of it but you know and she hopes that wow. the trend will will end but you know and I, but i just thought you know it and i did appreciate that that she actually names it because that's the thing and, and, and she she um you know that it has become this thing that women bond with one another over and it's just it's it's a phenomenon I, I mean, I don't know. As a man, you you would have to speak to your male friends, I guess. But from what I've heard from men and all the men that I know, it is not a phenomenon that really exists amongst men. Of course, it is culturally forbidden, so even if there were yeah. germs of it, it it would be you know quashed. But I mean, again, I to to to, to um, look at it through the lens of uh, evolutionary psychology. I don't know whether there are explanations in evolutionary psychology for the fact that something that it doesn't seem men have an enjoyment of hating women is something that is flourishing. Certainly it's encouraged in our culture, but I don't even understand where it comes from. I've heard, you know, I've heard theories, obviously, um, men are born of women they feed at their mother's breast they have a period in their early years when they are their body is inseparable in a way in their mind from the mother's body so that there is a bond with women's bodies there um, that what feminists often call objectification of women is really men loving women's bodies so much that they will actually die for them you know loving them more than they yeah. love their own minds right. uh, whereas women don't have that they have quite the reverse they have an in-group preference they too have a sense of bonding with with the mother figure with other women and their primary bond is with the child and, and the need for the man to provide security right. in order to protect that child. So it's a very different kind of relationship. And, and that I mean, I have one friend who theorized that, that women's dependency on men for so many centuries was a dependency born of need. And it was a very different kind of emotional, it wasn't an emotional dependency in the same way that man has an emotional dependency on, on women for various reasons and, and, uh, and that now that women don't have to be dependent on men, that there isn't much left, that there isn't actually a, a deep instinctual love. Of course there isn't among some women, but, but the, overall there's a different kind of response from, from women towards men I mean I just yeah. don't know because I uh, you know I, I'm, I'm getting into areas that are sure. purely speculative I don't know anything about it really but it, it what struck me in that Mary Wakefield article about the dangerous pleasure of hating men she, she imagines she talks to her friends they all say, oh all well, these are very you know there's a grain of truth and and they say yeah, but there were a hundred years when men misrepresented women so this is just payback for all of that that's the pendulum theory that men used to hate women and represent them in negative ways now women hate men and represent them in negative ways that isn't even true though I mean like you know if you read any novel from the 19th century there are no novels yeah. about men hating women and, and misrepresenting L- women
0: m- m- most things that men do in their life that bring them purpose and meaning can ultimately be linked to the ultimate desire that that thing which they achieve will get the attention of women, right? So, for example, Mm -hmm. if you think of rock stars down to the last one. If you ask them, why did you want to become a rock star? Not a single one says because it was for the greater love of music. It was because I learned that that's how I can get women. So, you know, Picasso gets a long lineup of women, even though he's a very unattractive in a, in a stereotypical manly sense. He wasn't an attractive, handsome, he wasn't tall, dashing, and so on, but yet he can get Uh, tons of gorgeous women to line up so that he can have sex with them because he was Picasso, right? The great writer, the great singer, the great soccer player, the great whatever is doing all these things ultimately because he knows that that's a path towards getting the attention of women there is there is nothing that men desire more in terms of a currency than to have a potential access to women so by the way that speaks to really if you if you truly understood evolutionary theory you'd recognize that women have a lot more power than what the feminist project convinces women that they have because sexual selection which is one of the fundamental features of darwinian theory right there's natural selection and sexual selection for most species Sexual selection is carried via female mate choice. So, in other words, it is the recurring choices of females choosing the right males that determines the evolutionary trajectory of that species. So, what more do you want as a feminist statement than you have that power? So, it really is a form of, you know, you talk about, today we say gaslighting. It's epistemological Mm -hmm. gaslighting. It is the exact opposite. I mean, think about Mm -hmm. it. Men their biggest frustration in life is that they present themselves to the world hoping to get access to a a worthy woman but yet women stand on their pedestal and go no 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 right now what happens later in life so when, when both men and women are 20 women hold all the power and therefore men have to learn that they're going to be rejected 100 times until the 101st time someone agrees to go on a date with them. Now, at 50 years old, when women have just through a thing called life, they've lost some of their mating value because the 20-year-old woman doesn't have the same mate value in, in in a very crass evolutionary currency, right? She doesn't have the same mate value. But the man who's now 50... And now has the currency that women desire, which is he's got high status. Then the women at that age bracket will say, "This is unfair. This is the patriarchy. This is grotesque, right? Those these disgusting fifty-year-old going for the twenty-four-year-old. Where we're standing here, it's the patriarchy. So, but you didn't care. You weren't upset." When you were 20 and you held all the power in the world when you rejected 150 guys and, and to to your point, rejoiced at being able to sit on your pedestal and reject Mm -hmm. all those guys, you suddenly become boo-hoo-hoo, the victim, when at Mm -hmm. 50 years old, the high-powerful man is able to exercise some autonomy over his mate choices. Mm -hmm. He shouldn't have that power. So it it truly is a pathological form of diabolical power grabbing it's unbelievable
1: it is and it's even worse than that because even at the moment when the woman has the most power and doesn't you know complain about it or recognize any kind of asymmetry she's also complaining about it at the same time because she's complaining that she's being objectified and you know she's being sexually harassed and remember that video about the woman walking through new york city and it was edited down to she had a camera in her backpack (laughs) or something and it was edited down to four minutes to prove how horrible it was to be a woman walking through new york city and i'm sure you know out of the 18 hours of filming or whatever it was the Filmmaker decided to choose what seemed to be the most predatory and threatening four minutes But even most of that was guys saying hi, honey. Hi, beautiful You know in it it perfectly. How are you doing today? I mean most of it was really Strikingly benign and nothing that any sane person would turn into some kind of project of of, uh, You know victimhood but it, you know, it, it, yeah, it's, it's just like the, the, refusal of empathy for the experience of men, the utter lack of interest in imagining the male self, while the, with the, at the same time, the total demand that men think of nothing but the woman's perspective, is so, really astounding.
0: So, two, two points. First, uh, 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 a little quip the entire country of Italy would cease to exist if that clip were, you know, a form of street violence because you don't want to walk around in Italy. Where, now, of course, nobody is suggesting that you ever be physically violent, that you harass, that you intimidate, but the whole art of seduction that endless women find incredibly sexually attractive would become, mm-hmm. so Italy is no longer allowed to exist. <laughs> We no longer want, and of course I'm being stereotypical, it's not just Mm -hmm. in Italy, there are many countries where men are a lot more bold in their pursuit of women. By the way, I've received many emails from women who say, uh, you know, dear Dr. Sad, my name is so-and-so, I'm from Sweden, can you point me to where there's any more, any longer, any Swedish men that I can meet because nobody will come up and talk to me. Mm-hmm. right yeah. so so really you're putting men in an impossible uh position i wanted to say something else but i i forgot for uh for a second I, it'll maybe come back to me janice uh, I'm we're trying all, to hide from the sun. Oh, it's blocking. I, I wanted to see something else. I can't remember what it was. But anyways, uh, can you tell us about any projects that you're currently working on that you'd like to use this uh, opportunity to promote before we wrap it up? Although, of course, yeah. I could keep you for another five hours. On here. I know.
1: Well, thank you so much. It, it was really, that was a great talk, and thank I really you. enjoyed it. And uh, So all I would really promote would be, uh, as I said, I'm, um, my producer, Steve Brulé, and I are it's uh, just starting up again after we've received our permanent ban. But we're back on YouTube, which we've received a, a lot of criticism about, but that's where we are right now. It's called Studio B. It's very difficult to find right now. Um, uh, if, if anybody's interested in uh, following us there, if they find me on Twitter, I came back to Twitter after going off for many months uh, so if you find me there under Janice Fiomingo, I have the link to the, the new uh, YouTube channel. And so I'd be really grateful for anybody to follow us there.
0: It's the same format. You, you sort of do like a 20, 30 minute presentation, really well thought out, articulated, you know, once a week or something the way you used to do in the past.
1: Basically, we're going to do a little bit different in that we're going to have some longer documentary type, uh, you know, very carefully thought out of, of like 20 to 30 minutes. We're also going to have some shorter where I'm just going to be talking to the Camera giving an overview and a link to a longer essay. So, because uh, some people like to read sure. uh, things rather than just listen to them. So we're going to do a combination of those types of things. But yeah, that's what we're planning. It's going to be very similar. It's called the Fiamingo File 2.0.
0: Fantastic. Well, I'm I'm sad that you've left academia because you were one of my Canadian compadres with Jordan Peterson. We've lost a warrior at least within the academic ecosystem. But it's wonderful that you're continuing your uh, outreach. Uh, in in other venues so thank you so much for coming on the show Janice always a pleasure to talk to you stay on the line so I can say goodbye to you offline okay well
1: I want to say online that I really appreciate you too and uh, thank you for your very kind words and for having me on your show
0: thank you Janice cheers